welcome to culture matters my podcast where we dive into the many facets of organizational culture i am your host subhu kalpati i am a talent leadership and organizational development professional my guest today needs no introduction he is one of the most celebrated business leaders in india meet r gopal krishnan also known as gopal or gopal sir as i fondly call him he served for 31 years as a senior executive with unilever and then for 17 years as director of tata sons He has authored over 15 books cutting across a variety of domains and is one of the foremost thought leaders in the field of management and business leadership. Gopal sir, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be uh, talking to you. One place I would love to start is um you know your career. You've you've been um you know so active for so many uh, decades now over 3 3 plus decades and you've written books you've worked of course with hindustan unilever and tata sons as executive leader um for multiple decades and of course you've been writing books and researching now i think for so many years for as long as i can remember i think when i started my career i started reading your stuff and you know you've you've kind of uh, continued for so many years so looking back um, maybe the first question i would love to start with is you know how do you connect the dots um, right and i know you've written about this topic also so it's an interesting question to ask which is that if if you were to look backwards maybe look at uh, reflect on some big milestones from your career and learning points now how would you describe it you know um, the truth is that when you begin you have no idea how many dots are in front of you mm. read dot to mean opportunity and you certainly have no way to know how to connect them mm. these things happen as an afterthought and after the event right and so there are two factors that uh, i have learned the initially you are full of kinetic energy mm. um with some vague impression of the potential which is usually self focused as though you are the next steve jobs or whatever right which is fine uh, at a young age it's good to think that way in the latter part of your career it becomes much more of potential energy mm. because you spent out the kinetic forces and you start to be reflective and think of how to connect the dots mm. so if i i'm looking back and might appear to be more organized and structured than the truth that it was uh, the chaos that it was except it's all so much behind me that i can present it as though it's the output of an orderly process and mind which i want to assure your listener is not the case mm. so i started as a systems analyst programmer and was probably a bit too early for uh, the computer revolution and came to a crossroad about 5 years later mm-hmm. when i liked the company i was working in but i didn't like what was happening with computers in that company so i had the choice to either go and look for a computer company and there were not many of them at that time in india mm-hmm. mm, or stay with the company i liked i chose the latter mm. and uh, once i was not going to be in the computer department they said i could go into marketing and sales which is what i did and uh, my career developed in that direction Uh, until i went on to general management international postings and so on so that was one important dot whether i did the right or the wrong thing is not the question but to accept that there was a bend in the pathway uh, to which i was committed and luckily for me it worked out and the lesson i remember from that is it's more important to be with a company and an environment where it brings out the best in you that to be wedded to a function or a particular domain uh but if you are the other way around if you are domain focused and it doesn't matter who you are working with it could be the other way around so both are valid routes but you do come but i didn't think of it in such an organized way at that time then several years later not to go into every single episode i came to a juncture where unilever offered me the job to be a chairman of the middle east uh, what was called unilever arabia and i was again caught in a uh, bit of a dilemma 
my children were growing up they were 10 12 years old middle east and living in saudi arabia at that time was certainly not uh, uh, disneyland mm. uh, but the money was good to that extent it was disneyland but the job was very challenging uh, that unilever offered me and uh, but the negative was that the kuwait war had happened mm-hmm. and so there were bombs and bazookas going on so there was quite a hotspots i mean if today somebody offered you a top class job as a ceo in gaza <laughs> i don't think uh, you'll be in a rush to take it or you certainly have some self doubt i was going to live in kuwait but uh, kuwait is at the center of the gulf so the many things could have happened right but again i right or wrong i took a decision and i went and i thoroughly enjoyed it because for the first time in my life i learned to work with 16 different nationalities and acquired a deep understanding of what it's to be multicultural today everybody talks of cultural diversity d e and i or some such alphabets uh with regard to gender nationalities uh, religion caste god knows which are what else but i had no experience of that uh, you know you india may be living with a mindset of caste and religion but frankly they are not that far apart whether you are from punjab or from tirunelveli right but once you go to that place and you find that you are working with a swede a frenchman a dutch an american uh, a palestinian an egyptian uh, then you start to see things differently so it was a very important dot mm. by the end of that uh, experience i felt that uh, i had taken two big bends i'm leaving out all the small bends that happened in in between mm-hmm. and started to think and act i think a bit like a multifunctional multicultural uh, potential ceo of which the first experience i got there and these go to be the building blocks of uh, future leaders so at that time uh, it didn't sort of strike me quite the way i'm explaining it to you now and when i came back i became ceo of a large company here brookborn limited and vice chairman of hindustan lever mm. and then when i met ratan tata he, and he offered me a role looking across domains various industries you know sure hindustan lever you may go from shampoo to soap or vanaspati dalda mm. but going to power generation truck manufacturing and uh, software coding is a very different ball game but at a very helicopter level mm. and that was another very important bend in uh, another important dot if i may those are the dots that connect my career mm. and so from being a multifunctional to multicultural i now became multi domain mm. and being multifunctional multicultural and multi domain approximately defines the path i took and i must have come close to getting fired many times but i managed to survive and here i am talking to you and i think therefore the lesson if i have to draw one overarching lesson is it's important to become some of these there are four attributes of a great leader mm. the first is you should be multifunctional i'm not giving this in any sequence of importance i'm just telling you as they occur to my mind mm. you should be multi locational there are some guys who spend all their life in chennai they can't move out of mylapur mm. uh, for whatever reason but then they they are still very good people mind you but uh, they may not have that breadth of vision so you must be getting an experience of being multi functional multi locational um you must be able to work in multicultural environments and when i use the word culture i'm just not using nationalities moving from tata a lever to tata is also multicultural right uh and multi relationships because some some people can work brilliantly so long as they have the same team but the moment you change everything uh, they have a problem because the management leadership career is built on domain function location and relationships mm. so that's the lesson 
one place i would love to go to next um, is your uh, first managerial stint and you've written also about it uh, about the topic but if i were to ask you to go back perhaps uh, i suppose it was in the late 1960s um right and uh, your first managerial role uh, probably when you were in unilever at that point in time um what were some of your biggest learnings when you took on the mantle of you know managing people when you moved into a managerial role as you made that shift i think it's what every manager learns or ought to learn mm. before styling himself as a manager uh, which is to acquire uh, knowledge and experience at the grassroots uh sometimes people come out of a b school uh, with their intellectual horsepower mm. uh but not necessarily the frictional horsepower of having walked on uh, hot fires if you see mm. what i mean right and the first learning i had was when they packed me off to work as a salesman and uh, i learned to sell to kirana shops and uh, a magnificent experience was a 3 hour stint i was placed as a salesman in a sari shop okay and uh, you know it was maddening because customers came in they didn't know what they wanted and they're not sure it was a sari and they wanted to know what kinds of saris are available silk cotton chiffon whatever whatever and i knew damn nothing about any of these things <laughs> and yet making a sale of 1000 rupees would give me great satisfaction mm. so understanding customers needs mm. and imagining that need uh, a solution for that need right. getting it wrong and trying again so my great thrill at that time was i managed to sell a cotton saree for 500 rupees to some lady mm. who had spent about 2 hours in the shop <laughs> messing me up you know and if you're an engineer in your training you tend to think you must know very clearly the goal you want to go to find the shortest and the most efficient direction to go there <laughs> that doesn't work in real life yeah. so grassroots experience is one and the second is developing a feeling mm. people call it empathy sympathy uh, whatever you want you want to call it or getting a feeling for that sweating bloke who's really doing the stuff Mm. but whom you have to be you have the privilege of being that colonel or the major or the general of and that also taught me a lot mm. and whereas i spent the first 15 years of my career thinking that knowledge is more important than relationships i spent the next 15 years realizing that relationships are at least as important as knowledge mm. and the last 15 years since you said i spent decade figuring out the relationships can do wonders knowledge can do good things mm. so the seesaw was completely turned the other way around right or wrong i don't know but you asked me my experience and i'm sharing sure now that's fascinating um thanks for uh, thanks for sharing that um so follow on question there is um you know of course you learned uh, grass you learned from the grassroots shifted from being an engineer to a manager completely you know moved roles um right and of course you already mentioned that you took on much bigger leadership roles eventually in your career so uh, those defining moments early moments of your managerial stint right uh, how did that experience shape in how you know you transitioned into becoming a leader did you uh, again looking back um, right you can probably connect the dots now but if you were to look back and you know uh, reflect on that i think it really as as you grow up in your career it doesn't matter whether you in an ngo or a software company or a multinational company there are four skills that evolve mm. the earliest part and i'll mention the skills first yeah and then i will tell you think of it as a pie chart uh, first you must be seen as an accomplishing manager mm. a person who can discuss accept result uh, targets and deliver results mm. if you're supposed to sell 100 you know 99 or 102 but you were able to hit your targets and you're able to organize yourself and your team to do that mm. the accomplishment is the first a i got four is mm. the second i've got is affability you need an odd mixture of firmness and affability to get things done especially when there are other people working for you uh, you can't just be a obnoxious character and shouted people and expect things to happen mm. 
that comes to you in the second part of your career i'm just imagining four steps right the third part of your career is uh, advocacy mm-hmm. you suddenly reach the senior level where you are required to generate ideas and sell it to other people mm. and uh, if they don't buy your idea you come from a background where you think they're all idiots and the only the ho- holding me up right. but actually you lack advocacy skills that you have to learn it mm. and the fourth stage is authenticity so i've got this image but it's not a hierarchical thing. you don't give up one and start mm. another one Mm-hmm. so i've got a pie chart where a1 a2 a3 and a4 mm-hmm. which means accomplishment affability advocacy and authenticity just change their percentages in the pie chart mm-hmm. the first stage of your career is dominated by the need to be an accomplishing manager because you know if you don't complete that you won't even get to the next stage in the next stage you are tested for affability and the third stage you're tested so they're all tested all the time right. you can't become a ceo and say i finish my you know uh, uh, spelling classes in third standard if i make mistakes now it doesn't matter right. so that's the way in which uh, when i think back hmm. uh, i was fortunate to have roles which enabled me to assimilate this and of course it ended up making me write a book on the subject also <laughs> right of course one of your earlier books that i read probably your first book that i read when i was in back in mba i think was the bonsai manager uh, and i was completely hooked um, you know and i think one of the important points that you make from that book is uh, the fact about paying attention to one's feelings listening to one's intuition um, and also being open to new experiences uh, could like, you talk to that uh, a little bit why is why is this a very important skill uh, for managers to develop um and how does it play out with probably the four a's that you just mentioned uh, you know if you take an uh, inspiration from the nature mm. plant kingdom animal kingdom uh, organisms never cease to be adapting and it is that that gives me the inspiration to say a human being who ceases to learn mm. has stopped adapting because learning is a way to assist adaptation see i sense that new technologies are coming in artificial intelligence i don't have a clue what the hell these young fellows are talking about right and i was either read or be willing to admit i don't understand please tell me to a guy who may be half my age and i must have the discernment to know what i should i don't have to get to the last algorithm but to understand its relevance and applicability so at each stage of your career you're learning sometimes you're learning tools and techniques early stages in the middle you're learning relevance and applicability and at the third stage your organization or department or whatever so learning is a very important part of uh, anybody's life even if you're a um, uh, a mother who's raising three children you're learning all the time yeah but somehow there is a feeling and i'll restrict my comment to the managerial class because that's my enterprise class mm-hmm. that i've finished learning mm-hmm. and uh, everything else is on the job i mean i despair a bit i mean i don't see young people reading of mm-hmm. course they have a problem this shortage of time and so on but that's not a reason to stop learning this is like a school child saying i've got to play cricket and football so i won't attend classes Mm-hmm. which is fine if you're going to become the next roger federer but uh, not everybody becomes a roger federer so i wish younger people would recognize mm-hmm. that the learning gene in their mind and body mm-hmm. by the way all the comments i make apply to the body as well because if your body gives up then your mind can be active god forbid if nature has inflicted on you or genes have inflicted it on as a separate matter yeah. but it should not come out of obesity and uh, uh, yeah, not being active i think it's very important for people to recognize that i must be physically fit and mentally fit and not having time is not an excuse mm. but uh, i see the opposite trend to be honest mm. i see people stuffing their food 
multitasking, which is fine if it's once in a while. Mm. But if your lifestyle is like that, and you mm. know, don't read anything because you don't have time, mm. uh, then you have a question to ask yourself. Nobody else needs to answer it. Yeah. Uh, another question, since we are on the topic of um, you know leadership and management. Uh, i'd love to hear um, you know from your uh, stint right uh, i'm sure you had multiple challenges and multiple sets of learnings but um, probably if i were to point ask you to point at one you know toughest leadership moment that you had um, right maybe a call that you had to take or whatever right uh, what what would that be i suppose there have been many but i let me restrict it to just one or two mm. because this is not a biography of myself but an illustration yeah of what other people might um i think one important challenge that i faced was uh, how to balance my rationality versus intuition and that resulted in my first book which you alluded to a while ago the case of the bonsai manager right when i was appointed as chairman of unity of arabia my desire to succeed was very high and that's not a fault and unity were already spent 15 million dollars researching and developing a product and market researching it uh, and were convinced it to be successful in a sense i was to the, i was a general who was supposed to go and implement it on the ground right but when i went there i listened to all the rational presentations but my observational anecdotal experience in the marketplace told me this is going to bomb mm. and that led me to an inquiry finally it resulted in a book but that's a that's nothing to do with the episode itself that was the trigger but i had to take a decision do i scream now and maybe somebody will say hey the new boy on the block he's coming and rubbishing the past mm. or somebody could say maybe he knows something let's listen to him or maybe somebody will say well you do it your way so long as you deliver some pbt or pat or whatever mm. which will leave you completely open So I picked up the phone. I spoke to London and two main board directors invited me to come and share. Mm. And it taught me that while you are taught to be competitive, there are times for collaboration. Mm. These are not mutually exclusive. We collectively came to how to solve the problem, and I'm not going to go into that problem because uh, the challenge that I was facing was all the data saying this. Mm-hmm. but all my experience and intuition says that right what do i do and it happens all the time in life mm. you're very happy in your company you're earning 100 somebody comes along and says i'll make you the big boss and you'll earn 200 and it's very tempting not because you're poor <laughs> but mm. because it's tempting to become the big boss and young people change jobs right uh, continuously for that reason some of them change it for that reason and each of us battles with it and then comes to a conclusion should i marry this girl she said you know enough is enough make up your mind mm. and i'm not ready yet you know so all these things happen and life's most important decisions are taken with intuition not rationality who to marry which job to take uh, whether to be happy or unhappy mm. you know uh, which house to live in which city to go and there are rational decisions right rationality means you can convert it algorithmically and you there's no such algorithm we, we are not all robots yeah so that was one uh, which i learned a lot from and which resulted in my sharing that learning through the book that i wrote which you have alluded to yeah uh, the second thing i learned was culture matters whether it eats uh, uh, somebody for breakfast and all that stuff apart uh when i moved from lever to tata mm. you know we create our own mindsets and perspectives and here i was in lever's vice chairman i knew quite a lot about that business and i thought if i knew that i am cat mm. you know i suddenly moved to tata and they said who's this guy and why should a truck maker or a chemicals maker talk to a guy who's been peddling so Mm. uh and that both are wonderful companies but their cultures are different yeah you know if i'm a tamil married into a punjabi family both will be lovely families but the punjabis have a way of doing things and one must adapt mm. 
So I came up with this insight that management pedagogy, if I go back to the beginning of my career, focused very much on IQ, mm -hmm. intelligence quotient. And I remember Phi Beta Kappa and uh, uh, Mensa tests and all sorts of stuff. Whereas young people used to get excited to say, hey, I got 120, 130, I'm in the top percentile or bottom percentile. As I grew in my career, I realized, yeah, IQ, IQ, theek hai, but you need EQ. Mm. Because that had become a fashionable word by then. Right. And this whole stuff about Daniel Goldman and empathy and so on. Yeah. But by the time I finished in my last part of my career, I said, you need IQ, EQ, and AQ, mm -hmm. adaptability quotient. Mm -hmm. And we tend to get more rigid as we grow older. I mean, that's a physiological suffering, that uh, a process that happens. Mm -hmm. We become rigid, not only bodily, but in our mind as well. Mm -hmm. And each of these you have to work upon. Mm -hmm. If you leave it to nature, then you age faster. Mm -hmm. So IQ plus EQ plus AQ equals a future manager, future leader, sorry. Right, right. Very interesting. Thanks. I want to um, unpack this piece a little bit more, um, sir, which is the, uh, you know, the shift from Tata Suns to Unilever. You already mentioned that the cultures were different and ways of working and obviously businesses were also very different. Um, right. Um, so, uh, when it comes to the cultural adaptation, uh, first of all, how how did you see the cultures play out in these two organizations, and how did you adapt? Uh, right. And how did you make the most of the shift? And what is it that you know about being adaptable and versatile? How how did that work in your favor? I don't know if it worked in my favor. That I cannot say. Mm. But I recognized early on that they are different. I had a requirement that I should be able to sleep well at night. Mm -hmm. So from an ethical point of view, governing governance point of view, both are at the top of the pops. Mm -hmm. I had no issue there. That's the homework you do before you join. Right. And you could still turn out to be wrong, but you do some due diligence. Two absolutely ethical people may have very different approaches to the same problem. Mm -hmm. And it's there where culture came. And I'm using a... An experience I had, nothing to do with Tata and Lever. Mm -hmm. You know, I was brought up as a Tamil and whenever I would fall sick in my home, they said, give him chapati. Mm -hmm. Because it was thought that wheat is lighter on the stomach than rice. Rice mm -hmm. was a strength-giving thing, you know. And I went to stay with a Punjabi family and I fell a little off color. They said, today we will give you rice because <laughs> it is light on the stomach. Mm -hmm. Right? Because in a Punjabi way of thinking, wheat is the one that gives you all the strength. Right. And I mean, I've taken a very small example, which is uh, makes uh, people who are familiar with this pattern uh, immediately see the point. But it applies to dress, culture, ways of doing things, etc., yeah. etc. Yeah. Uh, and it, so it is. Uh, uh, Hindustan Lever is highly process oriented. Mm -hmm. It is also relationship-oriented, but if I have to give a percentage, it was sort of 75-25 or maybe 70-30. Mm -hmm. Tata also had processes. You can't run a 150 billion enterprise with just relationships. Mm -hmm. But the percentages might have been the other way around. Mm -hmm. Processes 40 and relationships 60. And that results in a different way and asking for things to get done. Mm -hmm. Um I mean, in levers also, once in a while, you say, Yar kara de. Mm. But you say it a bit more often in Tatas. Yar kara de. I'm mm. in trouble. Uh, in the lever way of thinking, ethics is a thin line that separates right from wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a Greek philosophy. In the And Greek philosophy might have influenced Anglo-Saxon ways of doing things and that might have affected their way of looking at things. Yeah, Tata is a very Indian philosophy driven. I mean, they are not consciously adopted it. I'm just saying mm -hmm. because of their cultural roots, they are that way. Right. And uh, what is right and wrong is a thin sliver at the end. And in between is a mass of ambiguity. I see. And Hindu philosophy mm -hmm. is exactly that. Mm -hmm. Most of us struggle. If you really get into serious study of Hindu, 
that everything looks uh, uncertain. Right. And what is absent? Even in Ramayana and Mahabharata, they will say, is this, uh, did Ram do the right thing? Did he do the right thing consistently? Mm. Uh, why did he take Agni Pariksha of uh, Sita? And so on and so forth. Um, in uh, the Anglo-Saxon way of thinking, um, rationality and analysis is very important mm. to quickly come to a number of alternatives and then choose the right path and then speed ahead. Mm. I think in the Indian way of thinking, continuous inquiry is very important. Mm -hmm. And uh, you always keep your mind open. That looks like an indecisive person in the other way of thinking. Right. I've just taken these two, three examples. I don't want to exaggerate them as though they are completely different animals. But if you're asking me the difference between a leopard and a cheetah, to a common man, they both look like terrible man-eaters. Right. But uh, if you ask a physiologist, he will tell you there are a hell of a lot of differences between a leopard and a cheetah apart from the color of their skin. Mm. And it's in that sort of manner mm. that uh, I refer to these differences. And when I joined, even before I joined, I knew that they would be different. I put on my AQ button, mm -hmm. adaptability quotient button. And uh, perhaps that helped me to survive, though I must have had a few narrow scrapes here and there. Yeah, you you did more than survive. So thanks for uh, thanks for sharing that uh, sharing that uh, piece of uh, you know the framework. I think that was amazing. Um, what I want to ask you next um, is that you know when it comes to organizational culture itself, you said culture matters, um, right? Uh, what is it that leaders get right, or what do they get wrong, um, and what should they be doing instead, right? Culture has been you know with us forever. It's it's not new, and you also mentioned the fact that it probably comes from somewhere in a familial context, in a you know national context, and also in an organizational context. So given that background, um, when it comes to leaders, what is it that they should be doing? What's the role of a leader when it comes to nurturing culture in an organization? You know, the, um, 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 first of all, people who are on their way up, hmm. somehow their IIT, IIM, whatever, you know, knowledge-orientated education, which I don't fault, so don't get me wrong. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not knocking it. Uh, as I did myself, start their career thinking that knowledge is the most important thing, and later on they come to other realizations and they adapt to it in their own ways. The truth is that ninety-nine percent of all human beings address a problem in about the same way. Mm. It's a 1% that makes a difference. Mm. So just like somebody would point out, a genetic scientist, the 99% of the human genome is the same as the chimpanzee. Mm. But you, that 1% is what tells you you're different from a chimpanzee. Mm. I call that 99% rationality and knowledge. Mm. Because it can be converted into pedagogy. Knowledge can be made into pedagogy. Pedagogy can be imparted to another person. That person can be tested and certified to have learned the knowledge. Right. That's how people get a physics degree or a doctorate or whatever. It's the 1% that makes a difference. The 1% that nobody teaches you. Mm. Mm. And that degree of uh, <clears throat> astuteness to understand Let's say I got it 99% right and I'm an absolute expert in networking or artificial intelligence or, you know, applying futuristic <coughs> technologies will not get you home and dry is uh, what makes a difference. Right. So uh, I call this 99% as a left brain okay. and the 1% as the right brain. Very often you see CEOs Having all of the 99%, maybe 99.9% and then 0.1%, <laughs> the relay trips mm. and uh, something goes wrong. Right, right, right. So the 1% is what really makes a different when it, difference when it comes to focusing on things like culture or um, emotional agility. I think that's the other term. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's on the leadership uh, front. And I also want to take that question forward and... Uh, ask you about the role of the managers because managers, you know, mass of the organization and they also shape the culture and how people experience the culture of an organization. So um, how does, and of course, you know, this prob 
problem pro- probably manifests itself uh, in in a lot more complexity when it, when we look at the managerial cohort um so how what can organizations do to make sure that the middle layer the managerial layer is upholding the culture upholding the values uh, of the organization i think there are two principal waves hmm. in my experience there are probably 10 but i had mentioned two that sort of pop in my mind the first is for leadership to walk the talk hmm. i mean if the leaders are saying we are an ethical organization but they are seen to be allowing a bit of a backhander here and there and mm. uh, people read that it's just like parenting i mean you know you tell your children never lie and then you whisper to your wife tell him i'm not at home <laughs> your kid is observing that right i'm not saying that ruins the kid but those are small little uh layers that are creating the atherosclerosis mm-hmm. if i use the medical expression mm. which influences a child to say yeah it's okay to lie if you're practical about it you know yeah so the first is for leaders to walk the talk and the second thing i would say is to create environments where people can reflect on their experiences and their learnings mm. in the training courses in the narratives within the company you know i remember in 1999 Uh, Tata's were very keen to get uh, airline, and we persisted. We said we'll do everything in the right way. And then somebody asked for a bribe. Uh, we said we will not pay that, and he cancelled. Uh, I mean, he he rejected our application. And some people did tell Ratan Tata, "Hey, for five crores, you could have got an airline twenty-five years ago. You went and paid eighteen hundred crores to get Air India. Eighteen thousand crores to get Air India, but." when you reflect on it you say but that is tata mm. and you may consider them stupid somebody else might have solved the problem differently and there are many ways to solve the problem but it would not be a tata way of solving the problem mm. and is it important for that to be held by tata in our opinion it was mm. we went to singur because not because bengal was wildly attractive mm-hmm. but because we thought can we make another part of the country which is lagging behind get a vibrant industry which will create an ecosystem of jobs mm. and in the process we'll make a good car and make money out of it uh, it didn't work mm. whether you blame the left government or the mamta banerji or tatas or all three or the farmers for that matter the fact is it didn't work mm. uh, you get 800 crores of compensation because some arbitrary uh, arbitration award came uh, 800 crores is neither here nor there uh, but uh, it looks like a vindication of principles but that is the way tatas do it mm. somebody else might have solved it differently right. so i think these are the uh, uh, i may use the word the the aha moments mm-hmm. when the culture is set yeah and they have a wide footprint in the company to say my god i am nobody i am not concerned with singur i am doing a software coding in tcs in trivandrum or something mm-hmm. but that's the way tata does it then i better fall in line and learn how to do that sort of thing in my own small little domain sure so culture uh, is what people in the organization believe is non negotiable mm. and uh, to teach non negotiable things you cannot run a classroom you can run a classroom but uh, it is not the most effective but for learning from experiences and that's how walk the talk uh, create the narratives of the aha moments mm. and uh, let people reflect on their challenges everybody has an aha moment by the way mm. uh, singur may be famous for the terrorist attack in the taj may be famous because it happened with a huge footprint Mm-hmm. but everybody has a aha moment in a small way a neighbor you know is bullying me i have to run my shop floor what do i do that's all mm-hmm. stuff very interesting and those narratives uh, help you also decide on what you need to do at that point in time because you can reflect on it and take a decision accordingly correct yes. yeah correct Yeah. um so uh, this is called a rapid fire round so where i where i do what i do is i ask you uh, I, i throw one word at you and you say the first thing or phrase that comes to mind right 
um that's it and if you want to follow up with some explanation you can do that that's totally up to you uh and i have a series of words which i will now uh, throw at you is that is that okay can we try this i'll try okay okay so first word coming your way uh, leadership people organizational culture habits manager people okay innovation novelty values culture uh, trust earning you earn trust okay. you don't get trust right uh, growth sustainable uh, startups learn from grown ups <laughs> okay wonderful that's uh, that's the end of the rapid fire round i think you did really well thank you for playing along um i have one follow up question there uh, which is interesting that you said habits for culture uh, if i were to ask you to unpack that a little why did you say habits because culture is not some ephemeral mist hmm. that floats in front of your eyes the word and the way specialists talk about it it looks like some darjeeling mist that's floating in your eyes hmm. culture comes out of habit hmm. so when you train your child that you must brush your teeth you must get ready for school mm. your uniform must be placed uh, when you go to an ncc camp and you're asked to make your own bed you know many people just leave their bed and they go and there's somebody in the house who comes and makes it yeah that's how culture has developed mm. so how do you say there's a culture of discipline we mm. often say that organization tcs has a fantastic culture of discipline right that's not debate whether that's true or wrong or right but to say that that's one of the hallmarks of tcs the joke used to be kohli gets up in the morning and says left right left right 200000 people march left right left right slight exaggeration to make the point mm. how do you instill culture mm. to habits right and therefore uh, and you how do you instill habits by example if the daddy and mummy are getting up at 9 o'clock in the morning and they tell children you must get up at 5 o'clock it's how to work so this whole sequence of ingraining culture because culture has to be embedded but it has to be embedded through habits and through their observations hmm. so that's why i use the word habits habits are very important so you want your child to be at least you want to raise them to say believe in god and spiritual values let's say just for mm. arguments mm. well then you might resort to teaching them three shlokas or three prayers depending on which religion you belong to right then you might say that let's say it every friday evening mm. or sunday morning and then you might give them a book and say well if you get 10 minutes say it every morning yeah and then when the guy is 30 he says my dad or my grandfather taught me this and he is then tends to be a bit more spiritual yeah. mind you one in many will say this all rubbish and uh, i'm going to do what i want but that's fine you must do your bit very interesting and that also um, connects to rituals i suppose right which is exactly. when you're doing it together as a family for instance i have a metaphor for culture mm. which is that it's like a river mm. if you look at any river it starts with a small trickle somewhere mm. talakaveri or gangotri or veravati so the basic philosophy of that company starts as a trickle mm. some founder says i must create jobs i must be a value to society that philosophy if it's materialistic that i must have a quick unicorn and bail out with x crores mm. that's an acceptable philosophy but it won't be long lasting mm. some are durable philosophies and some are uh, episodic philosophies mm. and you look at the history of all great companies and a great company by definition has to have lived for some time or right. done great things right when you say who are the great people you may think of shankaracharya you may think of uh, uh, vivekananda they had short lives but they did fantastic things in that short time mm. or you think of people who lived a long life and did fantastic things during a long life jrd tata pandit nehru or whoever you abraham lincoln hmm. so either you do superhuman things in a very short time or you do pretty impactful things over a long time and those are the people who leave their footprints on the sands of time 
and all of them are either uh, inventors of or perpetrators of a very deep philosophy a hallmark of a impactful leader i don't understand what srinivas ramanujam did he died at 32 or something mm. but that he was impactful i am very clear in my mind mm. i don't understand his mathematics probably nobody else understood his mathematics also but the experts who use it say that this guy is a genius mm. and geniuses tend to be very poor on relationships mm. because there's some short circuit in their brain which causes them to be genius yeah they're not sure which short circuit it is so my take on that is that uh, think of yourself your culture as a river mm. it starts with the gangotri now some rivers have a short run and then they die mm. some others flow through they come to allahabad where they are very large iconic things are attributed to them like in a company there'll be iconic people mm. you know iconic leaders darbari said sumant mulgaonkar or ramadurai or fakir chand kohli and uh, those people have narratives around them mm. so there is philosophy there are icons and narratives and then the delta region in the tanjore district or in bengal where they break up into rituals right right and in religion all three are important mm. uh, you know if you're taught every tuesday you must keep a little fast for hanuman or whatever mm. that's a ritual you don't understand why the hell you are keeping a fast and what is it got to do with hanuman and what's hanuman got to do with your life yeah. because you don't have the time to go into the philosophy so if you want to go through the full course and actually a river metaphor is very beautiful because it's the cycle of life itself mm. a small thing is born somewhere it becomes a big impactful river with stories around it and then it breaks up into rituals and it meets its maker in the ocean right so i find the river to be a very fascinating uh, metaphor there must be other metaphors but i'm 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 hung up about this one nice i it's the first time i've heard it thanks uh, for putting it across so beautifully um one last question before i let you go is um, you know if if you were to gaze into the future uh, right and um what does the new workplace model looks like uh, look like right if is there a new workplace normal or is it going to be more of you know what's already there are we going to carry forward something um let's say a few decades from now uh, where do you think or what do you think might change what might remain the same well i uh, i don't know whether I, i'm neither an astrologer nor a futurist but i believe that uh, people who think they can work without relationships mm. are like people who think they can work with artificial intelligence without natural intelligence mm. natural intelligence is not about to die it will only get enhanced by artificial intelligence mm. in the same way uh work will not die but uh relationships will never die mm. so the nature of work workplace will be principally determined by a resurgence mm-hmm. of natural intelligence which might mean human yeah. wisdom wisdom is probably a better word and uh, relationships there's a tendency uh, in some quarters to think that ai will change everything and you know large language models will come and you struggle to understand exactly what that means mm. and uh, you run along with it and you may also say it in a few speeches but very few people have the courage to talk about natural intelligence yeah and about relationships because it's fuzzy yeah the fuzzy will become more strong mm. which means the ability to deal with ambiguity would be the mark of the future workplace in the leader whereas everybody is in the pursuit of clarity right so you're like a blind man touching one part of the elephant the proverbial story mm. and missing the other part so that's my view very interesting so holding that space for ambiguity and being being okay with it and in fact capitalizing it uh, on it and also working with it i think that's 
which by the way is my view is the great strength of an indian culture mm. indians are steeped in ambiguity yeah and it is not some, sometimes in many work situation people say come on yeah be clear don't beat around the bush yeah uh, but there are benefits for both mm. and indians can be very creative but necess- not necessarily with discipline mm. whereas westerners can be very strong on discipline but not necessarily very creative right and that's reflected in their music you hear a western orchestra everybody is given his task he comes and sits at his or her table and the master orchestra does swings his hand in some manner and each person has his or her role known mm. and a fantastically creative music is produced the creativity is on individual but it's an aggregate mm. you see in indian kacheri uh, there'll be only five people there won't be 100 people mm. they saunter in with an informality which suggests that they are not serious they almost smiling at each other then they are experimenting and playing around with each other mrudangam is playing to the violin the violin is playing to the tanpura but they also produce very creative music mm. one gives the impression of high discipline with creativity inside it mm. and the indian music gives the impression of great creativity with discipline behind it right they are two opposite emulsions mm. and if you take chemistry if i emulsify water into oil then i get butter mm. but if i emulsify oil into water i get mayonnaise mm. and to the consumer butter and mayonnaise are very different yeah and so is indian music and western music but the ingredients are exactly the same mm. oil and water fascinating i must say thank you so that was my last uh, question for you this conversation was special besides the many stories and frameworks narrated by gopal sir what really stuck with me was the analogy of the river for culture how culture originates upstream like the source of a river and then flows through the many tributaries to converge as rituals and habits through an organization until next time i hope these meditations spark positive change within your organization <laughs>